0: Morning. My name is Cor. I'm on the pastoral staff here at Hope. Do you want to welcome me if you're just passing through? We understand that. That's uh, the unique nature of hosting a Super Bowl in your town, As some people come and hang out for a week, and uh, maybe that's you this morning. I uh, wish we could be playing in it, but that was not meant to be. All right. Um, I love a good story. I love a good story. Can I already see? I've lost some engineers in the crowd. Like, what? What are you talking? I love a good story. Epic, epic stories. I love them. And if they come in movie form, all the better. Saves me a little bit of time. But, but Star Wars, and our boys have gotten into Star Wars. And, and for them, it kind of started with The Force Awakens and Rogue One and The Last Jedi. So we've gone back since then and, and looked at all the other ones. Um, but you have, you have Luke Skywalker as kind of a... a significant character in that film and and yet I mean watching films I have this unavoidable need to talk to my boys about images of light and darkness and and try to connect them to the greater biblical story and 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 I think they've tired of it because I will at times when we're watching a movie at home ask whoever has remote control hey hey will you stop it? Will you stop the will you stop the movie? And now the automatic response of my boys is, what, Dad? Was there a very Jesus-like moment that just happened? Was there, did something happen that, that would remi- remind you of Jesus? And, I, you know, there are times where that might be true. Other times it's like, no, i just got, I got to go to the bathroom. Just give me a second, will you? Um, but, but I certainly love the Lord of the Rings trilogy and, and Frodo, again, another maybe unlikely hero and character in, in the story who's able to take, take the ring and, and bear that burden, even though he didn't want to. There's the, the Hunger Games with, with Katniss Everdeen. And I recognize, even as I'm sharing some of these examples, some of you might be parents, and you're kind of like, whoa, whoa, the warning signs are going up. Like Because in this story, and in many stories of life, there might be questionable material. So I'm not saying you have to watch these movies, uh, I understand if you would make uh, different decisions. I acknowledge there is violence in this film, and, and there can be times where you as a parent choose otherwise for your kids. In this case, you might actually go to Safe Reads or Safe Films. It's a filter. Did you guys know this? There's, a, there's an app where you can actually place a filter on your movies, on your books, on, on pictures, that maybe even right now, we could test this. We'll try this. There's a button on this device up here, and I can just click, and we'll see what happens. We'll see if I press the button on my clicker up here that says safe pictures, we'll see what happens. Let me do that now. All right, so (laughs) it's kind of like a Hunger Games meet VeggieTales uh, thing going on here. So you might want to utilize that. I, I did that with the... The Harry Potter books, and I read all seven books in about five minutes. I took all the questionable content out, <laughs> concerns about wizardry and witchcraft, and boy, those are short books. Um, no, I, in in all honesty, I, I just finished Deathly Hollows, uh, reading it, and and for me, as far as the literary aspects and the storytelling and the connections to the biblical account, the end of number six, Half-Blood Prince and how Dumbledore's death, oh my goodness, and yet how different from book to movie. I didn't like the movie after after I read the book. I'm like, "What what did you do? I'm not gonna spoil it, not gonna spoil it, even though it's been out for years. But there are many, not just me, but there are many bloggers out there that see the connections from these films to biblical accounts, to biblical storylines, and several of them go after the connection between Harry Potter, his birth, how he was raised, and Moses, and that's who we're looking at: is uh, the story of Moses in the Book of Exodus. But just this idea that you know each of them was raised by parents that weren't their birth parents; um, their parents, their birth parents, risk much for them, and. And then they will inevitably grow up and realize that there is more in store for their lives, that they are called upon to lead against forces of evil and against names which must not be named. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I, I should have clicked the filter on this one. Let me hit the filter. There we go. Um, but we are just getting started on uh, the gospel according to Moses, and it, that's kind of a, maybe a weird rendering if you're uh, you know, not accustomed to how we've used that over the years, this idea that the gospel which you associate with the New Testament, with the Gospels of Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that we're using it in an Old Testament context. I'll, I'll get to that point later in today's message, but we are walking through this, a study of Exodus, looking at the life of Moses. And I want to do a quick recap. If you weren't here last week, I want to give a quick recap. am not going to read all of chapter 1, but it's important that we know the context. And the story that's been started... Because it's going to continue in our text for today, and it's going to keep going. The storyline is going to continue into the weeks to come. So let me just give a quick recap here. It said that now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So this goes back to the book of Genesis And it talks about this family, who at this point is being led by Joseph. Joseph is actually the first of his family to go down to Egypt. His family later follows him because there's a famine. There's no food. And so ultimately, the whole family goes down to Egypt. But, as it says here, that whole generation died. And then it goes on to talk about how fruitful, in many different ways, talks about how many kids they had. Why is that important? It's a fulfillment of a promise made to Joseph's great-great-granddaddy, uh, Abraham, that he would be, his, his lineage, his, um, his uh, kids and grandkids would be too many to count. And so we see that coming to fulfillment in the start of Exodus. Continuing on, it says, "...a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look," he said to his people, "...the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come," We must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. And so here we have a xenophobic king brought up who really could have gone to this people and said, hey, what are you doing here? (laughs) I don't know where you come from. I don't know your history. They then could have reflected back to the king, we're so grateful to be here. We were living in a place where there was famine. There was no food. We were gonna die. We come here and your people have welcomed us in. You saved us. That's how the story could have gone, but it doesn't. He immediately treats them shrewdly, poorly. And it says in verse 14, they made their lives, the the Egyptians, the Pharaoh made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields, the Pharaoh enslaves this people. He does so in all their harsh labor. The Egyptians work them ruthlessly, dealing with them severely. Now this, sadly, is fulfillment of another promise, that they were going to be an enslaved people for hundreds of years. And so this story is reading according to the promises of God, and yet... If you're in the midst of that, you're experiencing that, how devastating for you to be living as a Hebrew, as an Israelite in Egypt. The story continues it says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth or the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. And so it goes from bad to worse. Pharaoh doesn't just enslave a people, he now combines a form of genocide with infanticide. Hebrew babies kill them, specifically the boys. If it's a girl, let them live and this is incredible storytelling, amazing foreshadowing because what Pharaoh is communicating is, I'm not worried about the women. I'm not worried about the women. Let's take care of these boys and our problems will be solved. And in the first couple chapters of the book of Exodus, five different women come to the forefront and show themselves up to the task of confronting Pharaoh in his decrees. Fantastic. It says in Exodus 1:17 17 and 21, the midwives, who is that? Shiphrah and Pua. However, they feared God and they did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, They let the boys live. It says in verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Twice it says that these midwives feared God and acted in according with that, even at the risk of their lives. Because the Pharaoh could decree, okay, you disobeyed me, you're dead. And so at risk of their own lives, because they feared God more than Pharaoh, they save, they protect, they choose life over death. Jen Wilkin is a uh, speaker, podcaster about this. She says, They, Shifra and Pua, should have feared Pharaoh. Because what do you think will happen to these women if they are caught not doing what the Pharaoh told them to do? This man has the power of life and death over them, but they do not fear him. Why? They fear God. They are way less concerned with giving an account to Pharaoh and way more concerned with giving an account to a holy God and say, so they do not do what he has asked. Heroes. Civil disobedience right here in the first chapter of Exodus. They're they're told, do this, and they say, "No. no. No, do this, kill, and they say, no, and they bring forth life. What beautiful examples. What Jesus-like moments right here in chapter one. Sadly, things go from bad to worse. The Pharaoh keeps going. Verse 22 says, Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Whoa. Whoa. He basically creates open season where Egyptians can take matters into their own hands, seemingly if they find, even though not a midwife, not part of the birth process, seemingly if they discover someone giving birth to a Hebrew, that they can take matters into their own hands. And it brings us to today's passage. I want to read for you the first 10 verses of chapter 2. Um, that's kind of what we're going to work through. I want to, I want to read through it. I want to make some comments about those verses. But then I do want to get to this idea of the gospel according to Moses. How can we look at verse 2 and look at them in a manner consistent with like, a gospel rendering according to Moses? Let me, let me read for us. It says, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it, saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. I want to walk through this, and I do want to draw attention to just the fantastic storytelling that is happening not in all of the book of Exodus, though I think you know, an argument could be made, but just in this story. And there's five kind of main parts of a story. Some of you that are writers know this uh, full well, but you kind of have this idea of exposition, kind of laying out the foundation of the, of the story. You have rising action, kind of building up towards the climax when we see just something fantastic, incredible happen, maybe unexpected. And then you have the following, falling action, which brings us to ultimately resolution so I want to walk through that, and that's kind of how I've outlined my, my sermon this morning. So if you have a sermon notes, you'll see it there, or you can click online if you want to follow along there. But let's look at this, starting with the exposition early on here. Exodus 2, verses 1 and the start of 2 says this, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant. couple things to note here. Mom and dad go unnamed here, but not forever. Their names will come to the forefront in chapter 6, But that's not ultimately what they want to draw your attention to right here. That's not what um, we want to focus on. Instead, this idea that both are of the tribe of Levi. Now, Levi is one of the sons, maybe lesser-known sons, of Jacob, right? He had 12 sons. Joseph was one. We've already mentioned him. Levi was another. And so what's being communicated here? Absolutely, without a doubt, this baby that is going to come is what? A Hebrew. Without a doubt. Kind of in the language of Harry Potter, pure blood, like pure blood, like no chance, no, no getting around that. And she became pregnant. And as is true with story, the way that stories impact us is you have to kind of get yourself into the story. You have to imagine what that would feel like if you were Jacobed or Amram, the, the parents here. There's a decree. And you have a 50-50 chance where your daughter lives or your son dies. And imagine becoming pregnant and imagine the mixed emotions you would have of exhilaration and joy, and yet anxiety, fear, intertwined. And the narration goes so quick here. But nine months, sitting with that, thinking about that, praying over your child, make it a baby girl, make it a baby girl. Save my child We go on from the exposition and we come to the rising action. She gives birth to a son. Her heart drops. Her husband's heart drops. The baby is to die. And in really, really difficult situations, sometimes we utter the expression, I can't imagine. I can't imagine what that would feel like. No, no, no. We don't want to imagine. But if we are going to love somebody and empathize with somebody, God has given us the gift, the mind that can imagine, that can try to imagine. What would that feel like? If that was you, how, how would you respond? Imagine. Before going further, I do want to make a a quick note about the difference between narration time and narrative time, because we so quickly move through this account that we might not realize all that's taken place, and we might make some mistakes. So in this telling, we kind of get this idea of two Levites, a man and a woman, come together, and they get married, and they have Moses, seemingly right away. Based on other pieces of evidence from the book of Exodus, we learn that he has older siblings. And it could be, it's possible that, that what we have here is, is uh, a man marrying more than one woman. I, I'm not convinced of that. I, I tend to see them as older siblings, Aaron and, and Miriam, who we'll learn about later, as older siblings. And so time has gone where we have marriage and we have kid and we have another kid, and seemingly the, this decree doesn't impact his older brother. So, just realize that as we're going through this, the narrative itself spans out over months and even years. And yet, we come here and it's just two verses and it's like boom, boom, boom. All those things happen in succession. It's one of the challenges that that movie makers have, right? Is in the books, there's so much detail, so much that they fill. And in the movies, you just, you gotta get on with it. You gotta move ahead fairly quickly. So, again, imagine being his parents in the midst of this and the challenges that face them. It says, when the mother saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. couple points of note. That, that expression, he was a fine child, really difficult to translate. Commentators spend pages upon pages discussing that. And it's like, so... So like he he was a fine child he was a, a beautiful child like drawing the assumption that like if he wasn't then he wouldn't have been hidden for three months like where, where are you going with it I don't I don't buy that there is an idiom that it could relate to which is I want this. And that's how I'm going to tend to read this. If I think about a mom, I think about a dad, you have this baby, this baby should die, and you say, no, 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 I want this child. And you're willing to do whatever it takes to keep that child, to protect that child. And so she does so, and he does so for three months. And again, don't move so quickly past that. If you're trying to, Hide your child. Every moment, you're worried that someone might show up. Come into your tent. Remove your child, and you will never see them again. How much stress, how much consternation, how much sweating, prayers, As parents, talking to one another, what are we going to do? Are we going to save our child? Should we run for it? Where could we go? Where could we hide? It says in Hebrews chapter 11, as a kind of a recap of this early part of the passage, that by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Some commentators feel like what Moses has here and parents are some cowards. Scripture records it differently. That mom and dad sound a lot like the midwives. We're not going to fear him. We're going to make a decision for life. Our passage continues into, into verse three here. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Now, when I first read this, and maybe as you read this, you think, okay, so what's going on here? She kept him alive for three months and now she's just kind of casting him out into the river where he might drown? Be susceptible to animal attack like what's going on here my best guess on this is that the hiding continued that this was further attempt by mom and dad to protect their child now how do i get there the idea that he was placed among the reeds along the bank It sounds like a hiding place, not into the open waters, but amongst the reeds, along the bank. Let's find a spot where perhaps away from where people come to to draw water, where the traffic route is heaviest. Maybe we can hide him amongst the reeds, hide him out there during the day when people might come and do a sweep for any Hebrew babies. They're less likely to do a sweep for Hebrew babies in the middle of the night, for fear tent, and torch come together and light the thing on fire. So they're probably going to do their sweeps in the day, so maybe before sunrise, they bring him out, place him, hopefully away from where he might be detected and then go back and then come and retrieve him as needed at different points. But also there's this idea of the papyrus basket. What do we... What do we know about this? Let me quote Jen Wilkin again. She says, This word basket, here uh, here is the word teva or teba, depending on how you transliterate it into English, and it means ark or casket. It occurs 28 times in Scripture. 26 of them are found in the account of Noah and the ark. Whoa! And the other two are found right here in the story of Moses being placed in the Nile the water that was to drown him, the water that no doubt had drowned many of his contemporaries. Interesting that that word would get utilized here. So we have a picture of the ark. Now just make that pint-sized. A little, little boat, a little basket. Yet it's covered. Yet seemingly it can withstand being placed in Water in a marshy area? And why do I think that this was perhaps an ongoing effort to conceal him, maybe over days or weeks or even months? we got his sister playing a role here in this. It says his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. This sister, in all likelihood, was somewhere between the ages of 6 and 12 years old. We don't know for sure. Even with piecing together other elements of the Exodus account, we don't know for sure. But some things we need to recognize is if she's older than 12, she's probably becoming a servant somewhere, doing something. So she's probably going to be younger than that. But anything younger than 6, she might not be able to actually do what is asked of her. So that's where commentators would say probably between 6 and 12 years of age. And there, she's serving as a lookout. To try and help her, mom, her dad, her brother. Can imagine her kind of going back and communicating with mom and dad what she sees happening in and around. But, but yet could still get passed off as a child just playing, hanging out, hanging around the water. The story continues. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. He's discovered. He's discovered the rising action is building. Imagine if this was put to music, the dramatic music that it would entail here. This is a highly, also one other note, this is highly unusual. In all likelihood, she had opportunity to bathe within her palace. And so there's something going on here, perhaps, perhaps. She went down there because the Nile was viewed as a source of life in many ways. It also for the Hebrews was a source of death, obviously, but they saw it with potential power or maybe even a, a God of, of sorts. And yet seemingly there's an author weaving together a story here, writing a fantastic story. An unusual one, but a fantastic one. It says the narrative contains no suggestion, though, that Moses' mother planned for him to be rescued by an Egyptian princess. Such a strategy would have been exceptionally dangerous for Pharaoh's daughter might well have felt duty-bound to enforce her father's decree. So that is all just rising action in this story. And then, as I've already read, but... Serves as a, a climactic moment. She opened the basket. She saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. Some of your versions might say she felt pity for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Of all the emotions, anger, right? That this baby lives when my father had decreed otherwise. She didn't feel that. She felt pity, remorse, sorry that this baby was seemingly abandoned along the riverbank. About this, um, Alan Harmon says, she clearly would have known the decree commanding death to the infant Hebrew babies, but she chose to disregard it and save the child. I love how we could just quickly summarize this because this is great storytelling, irony of ironies. Pharaoh killed the boys, save one. Pharaoh's daughter saved the one. Boom! That's so great. That's such a great story. God bringing about salvation of this child from of all people. Pharaoh's daughter. I love that. That is a drop the mic moment. As my boys would say, let's go. As Paul Allen would say, it's a Minneapolis miracle. <laughs> in Egypt. We don't need to talk about what comes next. Like this is, this is fantastic. And this, this thread through the first two chapters the midwives who feared God, the birth mom and sister going to great lengths to protect and save. And now Pharaoh's own daughter brings forth life, protection in defiance of the king, her father. The story continues, falling action now, getting us to the conclusion here. It says, then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? I mean, this is just comedic now. You know, it's just kind of like, um, well, we have all of these people that could be the wet nurse for this infant. How about you? Um, I'll, I'll pick you. And, and it's her mom, and it's his mom, and it's just comedic, right? That she's going to identify her own mom as the wet nurse, Yes, go, Pharaoh's daughter answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. A couple things to, to note here. Um, to be a wet nurse is a servant role. And so that would have been common. What would have been uncommon is this idea of just paying her, So now, Moses' birth mom is being paid to care for her own son. Crazy, good, fun, exciting things. And so that is kind of the falling action that leads us to the resolution here. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. What age was he? We don't know for sure. If it was just the weaning process, probably around three or four years of age, he, he might have gone from his parents' house to the royal palace. Could be, uh, could have been older. Some speculate it could be on the high end, maybe eight, nine, ten. Is it possible in that time that, that uh, his parents are able to share some truths about who Israel's God is? Uh, the God they worship, the God they fear even more than Pharaoh? It's possible. Don't want to put all my um, eggs in that basket or all my Moseses in that basket. That's not even my notes. That was just here and it's still, it still came, it's still, man. all right. Last thing of, of note here, he is going to be raised in the palace, this royal uh, palace with privilege, with wealth, with education, which again is, is setting some of the stage for what is to come. Don't need to spend any more time out on there, uh, on that. And then this idea of Moses saying, you know, being named, I drew him out of the water He is now writing these words of Exodus. We talked about that last week. Um, His own name and the rendering of it, somewhat difficult. Seemingly, his his, uh, adoptive mother is just sharing, hey, hey, I drew you out of the water. That's that's where you came from. That's why you were named, was I drew you out of the water. So that brings kind of this section in Exodus uh, that we're going to read for today to a close. I want to now tie it to the bigger picture. We're going to try to do this in every message. Just how does this connect to God's bigger story? How does it connect to the gospel? How does it connect to the good news of God's work in the world? St. Augustine said this, the New Testament lies hidden in the old and the Old Testament is unveiled in the new. Now that's a a quote from uh, an ancient church father and I, I looked desperately to find the source of that, which of his writings actually has this in it, and I couldn't find it. So if you know, come find me and talk to me about that. Otherwise, this could be totally fake news uh, from the pulpit this morning. But it's online. I found it several places online. Um, but just this idea that the Old New Testament, which in your first reading, and I can remember going through the Bible the first time as a as a young believer, in seeing the Old Testament stories and the New Testament stories, what stuck out in my first reading were the dramatic differences that I saw between the Old Testament, first three quarters of your Bible, and the New Testament, the last quarter of your Bible. Over time, God has shown me as I've, as I've learned and grown and talked to other people that I respect and as I read, the tremendous unity that there is between the scriptures, that this is, in fact, not two stories, but one story, one storyline. And so I think we're right to look at it and say the New Testament lies hidden in the Old. It is there. And the Old Testament is unveiled in the New. How do I get there? Let me read a couple verses here from our New Testament that speaks to this. Just on the idea that the New Testament lies hidden in the old, and in its infancy, in a veiled fashion. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So, is Jesus' habit to go back to the Old Testament to look at Moses, first five books of the Bible, and prophets, and help them to understand God's plan, that things that were shared in part are brought to fullness? Times when they saw this deliverance in small fashion or in big fashion, That was simply a foreshadowing for the coming of Christ. And it doesn't diminish the deliverance that happened in that moment. They were blessed and cared for and protected. And yet this exodus would become a paradigm that God would use throughout his story, reminding them of his past faithfulness, looking forward to ongoing faithfulness. In Luke 9, we see the Old, um, the Old Testament kind of being unveiled in the New. It says about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Remember the transfiguration? Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, literally his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. And so what we have are these Old Testament stories, stories not meaning fake, okay? Don't make that mistake. Stories, these narratives, these remembrances of what God had done in the past, hopefully spurring on a people to the future and to fulfillment in what God had planned to do in Christ's Let me read from Wright's book, The Mission of God. He says, although Exodus stands as a unique and unrepeatable event in the history of Israel, it also stands as a paradigmatic and highly repeatable way of God in which he wishes to act in the world and ultimately will act for the whole of creation. That there are gonna be these moments, these gospel glimpses that are in line with the great gospel message of Christ. And it's interesting that Moses went through the waters and was brought out, and then he would lead the people through the waters and bring them out. Is that a spoiler alert? Uh, In the same way, Jesus is gonna experience an exodus-like moment, death and resurrection. Then he is therefore able to bring us through death and resurrection. God's saving in Exodus cannot be repeated, yet, God's saving like Exodus is constantly repeated. Constantly repeated. Some of you can look back on your own life to an Exodus like moment where God just delivered, God saved. There's been times in Hope's history where we kind of come to a crossroad, like, what's going to happen here? God, are you going to show up? We have no money, we have no building. And God has shown himself faithful. And that past faithfulness encourages us to look forward and trust for future faithfulness. To get a little bit more closer to the account from this morning, I already said that Pharaoh killed the boys, save one. Pharaoh's daughter saved the one. But how about in Jesus' story? King Herod killed the boys, save one. Joseph and Mary saved the one. There's a lot more parallels I could make to Moses and Jesus, to Exodus and the Gospels, but we're gonna get there in our study together. Just focusing on his birth narrative and Christ's birth narrative, we see these kings making these decrees to kill children, and yet our heroes are spared and delivered. Tony Marita says this, we should recognize a biblical pattern God takes a place of death like the Nile in the case of the Hebrews and turns it into a place of life and salvation. Think about Noah and the flood. Jonah in the sea. The Red Sea and God's people, which we'll get to in Exodus. And how Jesus' tomb became the place of life. All of these stories point to God's divine power to take death and bring life. Many Jesus-like moments, many moments of God bringing forth life out of death the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the unto- Old Testament is unveiled in the New. There is unity in these stories. And so I want to ask do you see that unity? And do you see God as the author of this story in the Bible, but also of our story, of your story? Do you see God as the author? What does that mean? You're not in control. That's one of the hardest parts of being a Christian is surrendering control of your story in your life to God. And maybe for some of you, you've not done that yet because it's so challenging, it's so difficult. You're not willing to relinquish your life, to give up your life, to give up control or the, the pen to the author. And as a preacher as a teacher as a pastor I want to I want to convince you that God is a faithful author as he writes your story in and amongst his he is faithful know that believe that secondly do you trust him as you as he invites you into his story we are actors, not not main stage, not the lead. We are bit actors and actresses in his story, and, and yet he invites us into that story. And this is some of the characteristics that we've seen from today's passage, but often in his story, there are times where we trust in things, not God, lesser things that bring about a certain misery, even a slavery, and God wants to rescue us from that. Anything, everything, anyone that we might view as more important than him. The midwives understood that. His birth mom and sister understood that. Pharaoh's daughter understood that. They took what was going to bring forth death and they said, no, no, no. We're going to choose life. By choosing God this morning, by choosing Christ this morning, you're choosing the author of life. Another one. God often works in unseen ways or behind the scenes and often that comes through difficult times, times of suffering and pain. I don't want you to go through the narrative so quickly because we know that the narrative took much longer. Imagine what it would have felt like. Imagine to be there. Every Hebrew parent of an infant boy, imagine How hard it was to believe the truth that God is faithful, that God is life. How hard it would be to believe that, to trust that amidst what they were seeing and experiencing. And one more. Do you trust him as he invites you into his story? A story which involves passing from death to life. Going into the water and God bringing you forth the other side. It is what we use to understand salvation, that you are brought into the water at baptism, right, signifying you died with Christ, and then you're brought up out of the water to signify you have new life in him. Do you see God as the author of this story, of your story, of our story, and do you trust him as he invites you to participate in his? Let's pray together. God, right now we pause and pray so that we might laud honor on the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's human nature to laud honor on other individuals, other human beings. And in the case of the first two chapters of Exodus, there are many that we could laud and yet we trust you as author working behind the scenes, orchestrating events that your plans might not be thwarted. God, we recognize you as author of everyone's story, even people in here or at Hope East that have not acknowledged you as such. You're the author. May they surrender. May they trust. May they come to you as the author of life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.